0: I've got a test for you, and the good news is there, will no, there won't be a grade. Don't answer out loud. Um, if you're like me and you actually can't think unless you're talking, um, you might want to write your answer, which is sort of fake talking, okay? So, but I want you to really try to come up with an answer to this question. Why was Jesus born? I mean, so you're like trapped in an elevator and somebody turns on you you've never met before and they look you in the eye and say, so why was Jesus born? What would, now, don't answer it out loud. What would come out though? I mean, what, what would you say? Why did he preach and teach and what was his message and why did he spend so much time healing people and why did he suffer such a cruel death? Why did he rise again and ascend to heaven? Why did he promise he would return? I, I can simplify all of these questions. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Somebody traps you in an elevator. What comes out? What, what immediately comes to mind? Nothing? Blankness? <laughs> something? What is it? Why, why did he come to this earth? What was his agenda? What was his purpose? Now, there is one answer and only one answer to all of these questions. Every other answer is wrong. The only answer to this question Is that Jesus came to this earth to establish God's kingdom. And if that doesn't come out of you. And you claim the name of Christ. You need to read the Bible. You need to immerse yourself in it. Until that comes out. Why was Jesus born? Why did he teach? Why did he preach? Why did he do miracles? Why did he die? Why did he rise again? Why did he ascend in heaven? Why did he promise us that he would return? Why did Jesus come to this earth? There is only one answer to that question that is right. Every other answer, no matter how religious, no matter how cloaked in Christianity it sounds, every other answer is wrong other than this. He came to establish the kingdom of God here. On this earth. Now what is this kingdom? Well last week we learned that the kingdom of God. Or the kingdom of heaven. Or just kingdom. Or in John's gospel he calls it eternal life. By the way if you don't define eternal life as the kingdom of God. Then you've turned it into something that it is not in John's gospel. John's phrase is eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but should have the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. Eternal life is his phrase for it. Now last week we learned that the kingdom of God is God's dream society right here on earth. This means our world is healed and God reigns and his reign, his rule is good and gracious. The kingdom of God is life under the benevolent rule of God on this earth. And the God I'm talking about is the God revealed in the Bible. He's the creator filled with love. And his agenda is nothing but goodness and wholeness and peace and joy and justice and beauty and truth and gentleness. A society, a community characterized by those things, by life and freedom and love and flourishing. This kingdom, here on earth, this was Jesus' theme. Not the plan of salvation. If you think the plan of salvation... Was Jesus' agenda? Try to find it in the Gospels. The plan of salvation is not the Gospel. Is it important? Absolutely. Is entrance into the kingdom important? It's just as important as being born is to being a human. But being a human isn't about sitting around talking about the act of procreation all the time. Entrance matters, but it only matters because of the overarching rubric of life. Sex matters. But reducing the kingdom to the plan of salvation is like having a one track mind only thinking about sex. You're stuck on the entrance, right? The gospel is not the plan of salvation. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom is here. This is Jesus' drumbeat, this is the theme, this is the reason that he came. Now, when you think of Jesus, think of the kingdom. If you think of Jesus and you don't think of the kingdom, then you're not thinking about the real Jesus. You're thinking about a made-up Jesus. If you can conceive of Jesus in your thoughts and kingdom doesn't come to you, you are distorting him, I promise. There is no understanding of Jesus apart from the fact that he is king of his kingdom. Jesus was about one thing, the kingdom of God. And with this firmly in your mind and in your imagination, you can hear what he is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're starting that today. We'll be in this for the next um, number of weeks. We've been going through Matthew's gospel all the way through chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, and it's all been preparation. You're supposed to arrive at chapter 5 just longing to hear what this, this huge build-up has been about. What is he going to say? We've been given tantalizing little tidbits of it. Look back at chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, why? Because you're going to go to hell if you don't, when you die? No. Now, is that true? Yes. But that's not what he says. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is coming near. It's it's at hand. Now, skip down to verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming. And just in case you didn't pick up when it says he began to teach the kingdom of God back in verse 17. In verse 23, it reminds you yet again. Proclaiming what? The gospel of what? The kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. What is the good news of the kingdom? It's that the kingdom is here. So leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that this is Jesus' theme. This is what he preached about. This is what he talked about. I showed you last week that his healing wasn't just a proof of it. It wasn't just a demonstration of it. It was it. It was the kingdom breaking through. And then we actually hear one of Jesus' sermons And the first word of the sermon is just in case you haven't gotten the message that this is Jesus' only drumbeat. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the drumbeat just keeps on coming. The last line, the last section of his introduction material, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He begins his introduction. He ends his introduction of his sermon. On the kingdom of heaven. And then look at verse 19. Right in the middle of it. The kingdom of heaven. And then the end of verse 19. The kingdom of heaven. Then jump over to chapter 6. Verse 10. The center of the sermon. Where he gives us the the gift of his prayer. And what does it say in verse 10? We are to pray for what is to be the singular passionate desire of our life the kingdom of heaven. And now, jump to the end of the sermon. How does he end his sermon? Chapter 7, verse 21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. This is his drumbeat, he's a broken record. When you think of Jesus, you have to think of the kingdom. Because the kingdom was his purpose for coming to this earth. It is the drumbeat of his message. It's the reason he healed people. And it is the reason he suffered. And it is the reason he died. It's the reason he rose again. It's the reason he ascended into heaven. It is the reason he promised to return. So look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is... um, We get a setting... Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, what do you see when you see this unfolding in your imagination? When you see Jesus walking up this mountainside, and his disciples following him, and sitting around him, and and then the crowds around them? What are you supposed to see? Well, remember, 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 Jesus was a Jew, and he was talking to Jews. And mountains are important. They're important in Matthew's gospel. It's here. It was back on the Mount of Temptation. It comes up in chapter 17 in the Mount of Transfiguration. Then it comes up in chapter 28 when Jesus gives his farewell address to people. The mountain moments in Matthew are peak moments. It's a geographic way of underscoring, underlining what's about to be said. But the main point about the mountain here is not some literary technique. Of making a point. It's that Jesus was a Jew. Talking to Jews. This book is written by Matthew. Who was a learned Jew. Taught writing to other educated Jews. And they would have all immediately seen the parallel. To Moses. Walking up the Mount Sinai. Receiving the Ten Commandments. The law of God. And then giving it to the people of God. As a constitution of the way they were to live their life. Now we have Jesus who has been prefigured as the new Moses in every single way, right? His birth had to do with dreams. There was an evil king that tried to kill him. He had to escape by going out of the land. And then he comes back and then he goes through the water just like Moses led Israel through the water. We've seen that Jesus is the new Moses over and over and over. And then when you see that he goes up on a mountain... Suddenly you discover he's not the new Moses. He is so much greater than Moses. Because he doesn't get his message from God. He speaks in his own authority. He is God. And here we have God constituting the life of his renewed Israel. So as you see Jesus sitting there on the mountainside. Surrounding, surrounded by his disciples. Who are surrounded by the crowds of admirers. You are seeing the king. And he is issuing the agenda for citizens of the kingdom. He's not merely giving a list of rules for how to behave. This is so important. If you take notes, you should write that down. He is not merely giving a list of rules for how to behave. He is laying out the way in which he will rule his kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is about how the king rules. First... And only under that is it about how we behave. If You've been begged by Matthew to approach the sermon from the perspective of the kingdom. Now everything in it you read has to be within that matrix. How will the king of heaven rule the kingdom of heaven on earth? How will he extend his beautiful and fecund kingdom? Through the sort of people... He describes in this sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember, 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 Jesus is a Jew. He is talking to Jews. This story is recorded by a learned Jew writing to other educated Jews. And the term poor has a long history for the Jewish people. The poor in spirit for Jesus and for his hearers. These are the people who have been ground down by long-standing social and political and economic distress. And this part is so important. And as a result of being disenfranchised and ground down for so long, they have learned to put their trust in God. Because everything else fails them. They have taken their poverty to heart. They have taken their oppression to heart. They are not deceived about the attraction of wealth. You see, you can be poor and not poor in spirit. And you can be rich and be poor in spirit. Now, where's the blessing? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Where's the blessing? Here it is. The good news to those who are poor in spirit is that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And what is a kingdom? It is not going to heaven when you die. That is not what it means. Nowhere has Jesus talked about death and what happens to you after you die. We've been together for 11 weeks. That is, the only time it comes up is when I keep trying to push the button to point out to you that it's not there. Theirs is not heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is heaven. That is absolutely not what it says. There's the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, Blessed are those who are financially impoverished, who are powerless and in their need through their long standing state of being disadvantaged. They have actually learned to trust in God for full redemption. And these are the ones who have the kingdom of heaven. These people are blessed. Now, get this. Because they are the ones through whom God's kingdom, heaven's rule, begins to appear on earth as in heaven. That's what it means. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It means these are the ones through whom God's kingdom is going to now begin to vegetate out into all of the earth. Let me say it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs in the kingdom of is the kingdom of heaven, does not mean you will go to heaven when you die. It means you will be one of those through whom God's kingdom, God's dream society, begins to appear on earth. Now look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Remember, remember, remember. Jesus is a Jew talking to Jews. Matthew's a learned Jew writing this to educated Jews. And the meaning of this beatitude depends entirely on on what these blessed people are mourning about. And to know that you have to know the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament you will think mourning. Oh I'm very sad because my grandma died. Mourning, oh, I'm very sad because I lost this, that, or the other. You see, if you're not immersed in Scripture and it doesn't form your context, you will unknowingly bootleg your preconceived ideas. But those who mourn had a a one and a half millennia tradition for the Jewish people. It is, and, and one of the best places we see it is in Isaiah chapter 61. That's why, we had, that's why Roland read it to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit came out of Isaiah 61 verse 1. It's the same. Look, do you realize that Jesus is beginning his sermon in Matthew the same way his first sermon in Luke was preached? Does anybody know what Jesus' first sermon in Luke was? The Nazarene Manifesto? What is the first thing he said when he stood up in, in, in Nazareth and preached his first sermon in Luke's gospel? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He quotes Isaiah 61 verse 1 because he has, procl- he, has, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's Isaiah 61 verse 1. That's Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. That's the first beatitude. And then the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, comes out of the second verse of Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to, look what it says in Isaiah 61 verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. Do you see that his Beatitudes, he's really just walking his way through the kingdom sermon of Isaiah. But listen how, what mourning is about in Isaiah. Comfort all who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion. Give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a spirit of faith. It keeps going. Skip down to Isaiah 61 verse 4. They shall bind up the ancient ruins. That's what they're mourning about. They shall raise up the farmer devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of, my gen- of many generations. Why do the people of God in Isaiah mourn? Because God's own people are on the bottom and the wicked are on the top. So mourning, they are mourning because the righteous suffer, because the wicked prosper, and because God has not yet acted to reverse the situation. Because the wicked hold the upper hand against the righteous. Mourners are those who both grieve in their own personal experience of tragedy, injustice, and death. And they reach out to others in their grief and compassion when they experience injustice and sin and evil and tragedy and death. In other words, they suffer and they love those who suffer. The Christian life is not all joy and laughter. You see, the marvelous consolation of the world to come is promised not to those who are mildly uncomfortable with the present world, It is promised to those who suffer and weep and sigh, but as they long for God's kingdom to be fully realized, these are the ones who suffer with deep confidence that one day God will wipe every tear from their eye. Now look at verse 5 Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Once again, it's Jewish. We must remember he is a Jew talking to Jews and just like the poor and just like those who mourn just like these were terms identifying categories of people that had been defined over a millennia of rich and thick history it is the same with the word meek if we had time we could dig into Isaiah chapter 61 verse 7 to once again see how the meek are identified there or we could explore Psalm 37 that Michelle read to us, which is surely on Jesus' mind as he declares the astonishing promise the meek shall inherit the earth. Let me bottom line it. You know who the meek are? The meek are those who are bent over by the injustice of the ungodly, they are the people who have been subject to the whims. ...of oppressive landlords. Look, you've got to see that these are not general principles for how to live your life... ...no matter what Gandhi said. These are announcements about the very people sitting in front of them... ...and what they've been going through for a thousand and a half years... And when he said meek, he is quoting Isaiah 61, seven. He is quoting Psalm 37. You've got to define it out of that context. And in that context, it's not generally meek people. It is people who have suffered at the hand of the wicked. Those who have been hacked by the swords of the wicked and pierced by their arrows. It is the ones who have lost and lost painfully. And they have lost unjustly. At the hands of the winners. See the Pharisees. They think that the land will be inherited by the racial Jew. And the Herodians are willing to compromise anything to control the land. And the zealots are about to engage in an all out war with Rome to win the land. And Jesus is saying no. None of you three groups are going to get it. The meek, those who are being crushed by Rome and put their faith in me, they will inherit the land. Not the racial descendants of Abraham and not the men of violence. The people who now possess the land out of their power and their violence and through acts of injustice, they're going to lose it. And the ones who are meek to the point of the cross will inherit the new earth. When the kingdom of heaven descends, the face of the earth will be renewed and it will belong to the flock of the crucified Jesus. God is not going to forsake this earth. He made it. He gave it to his image bearers. He is going to restore them. And they will have it. For all eternity. The renewal of the earth begins at Golgotha. Where the meek one died. And from there it spreads. When the kingdom finally comes. The meek shall possess the earth. Not the hard boiled. Not the pushy. Not those who throw their weight around. Jesus promises the kingdom. Not to those who try to force God's hand. But to those who patiently. And humbly and meekly and with gentleness and suffering, wait for it and work for it. The heart of the Sermon on the Mount is this conviction that the cross and not the sword. Suffering and not brute power determines the meaning of history. The key to the obedience of God's people is not their power. And it is not their effectiveness. It is their patience. Their confidence. In the kingdom of God. Our triumph is not assured by our abilities or our strength or our might. Our triumph is assured because of the power of the resurrection. And not because the good guys have more power. The relationship between the obedience of God's people and the triumph of God's cause is not a relationship between cause and effect. It is the relationship between the cross and the resurrection. And it is that counterintuitive logic that drives the people of God. Last one, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. At this point, I I feel like a broken record. Can I say it yet again? Remember, 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 this is Jewish stuff. Every word has to be read in the context. Righteousness here. If you have not saturated yourself in the story of Israel, and you come out, Of the conservative Protestant ghetto. You will think he's thinking about justification. You'll think he's talking about God's righteousness that he gives to us when we trust in him. He is not. Nowhere in the context is it dealing with that. Righteousness here means two things. First of all, it means justice, not justification. Justification. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. When we read Matthew 5, 6 in the context of Isaiah 61, verse 6, and many other relevant passages in the Old Testament, we see that to long for righteousness, to crave righteousness, in this context means you've got a burning thirst, a desperate hunger for justice. Those who have suffered injustice, and they long for justice... Those who labor with the victims of injustice. These are the ones who hunger for the oppressed to be vindicated. And Jesus is saying, you are blessed. God will satisfy your hunger. He will. He will put everything right. And the second meaning of the word righteousness here is good behavior. Right behavior, conformity to the will of God. So putting these two pieces together, Jesus is talking to those who long for justice to be done everywhere. For those who long for all the unrighteousness, both on a personal level and on a larger societal level. In terms of personal morality and in terms of public justice, he's talking about those who are grieved by the unrighteousness and the injustice. And out of this grief, they are homesick for the new heavens and the new earth. The king has come. And when he returns and consummates this kingdom, you will be satisfied with neither personal righteousness alone, nor social justice alone. But the two will kiss as the glory of God covers the face of the earth. God's dream society. A society where the weak and the vulnerable aren't sent to gas chambers. Whether they are Jews in Germany or unborn babies in America. You do know the abortion clinics. That is our gas chamber. You do know that it has killed far more than Hitler's germany killed of jews you do know that we are sitting by like complicit germans but there is coming a day when all of the gas chambers will be stopped and all of the vulnerable will get justice if you have had an abortion you need to know it is wicked It's not just murder, it is the worst murder. It's not a fair fight between me and Roland where he kills me. It is me murdering the most vulnerable. If you have done it, you must repent. If you have been involved in this industry, you must repent. You can't read the Beatitudes with their cry for justice, their hunger and thirst for righteousness. And not be broken for our own society's injustice. But you know what? If your own complicity, if your own abortion, if your own greedy grabs at power, whether it's over a fetus in the womb... Or whether it's over somebody at work. If you've been on the wicked side of that, you can be blessed. You can be forgiven. You can be. If it creates within you a deep hunger and thirst for your own personal righteousness, you can be blessed. This is the kingdom of God. The the kingdom of God, it is those of us, not who are perfect, but it is forgiven people who can never pay off our debt. But instead, we are working out of a debt of love and gratitude. It is a society of justice and love and peace and wisdom and beauty and moral goodness. It is a society of people who are right with themselves and right with their creator and right with one another and right with the creation. It's a society where God is... And humans in the natural order are joyfully webbed together. The kingdom of God is a community of your deepest longing. The stuff of our primal myths. It is that community. It is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. The kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. This means our world is healed and God reigns and his rule is good and beautiful and true and life-giving. So going back to the beginning. The Beatitudes are the agenda for kingdom people. They are not simply about how to behave so that God will do something nice to you. They are about the way... This, is, you've got, this has got to click. The Beatitudes are about the way that King Jesus is establishing his kingdom. How is he establishing his kingdom? He is doing it through this sort of people. People who are, by the way, keep reading the gospel just like Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is how to be the people through whom the victory of Jesus over the powers of sin and death is implemented in our world. The Beatitudes, this is a summing up of the work of the kingdom. When God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the poor in spirit. Those who are hungering and thirsting for personal and social righteousness and judgment, justice. You and me, we are citizens of the kingdom. Subjects of the king. When David Cooper is organizing us to work in hearts. When Paula Cook is begging you to get involved in the Harrisonburg Pregnancy Center. When Fran is reaching out to her neighbor. When Janelle is at home. In the ordinary grind. Serving our children. We are citizens of the kingdom, citizens of the king doing the work of the kingdom, a society of forgiven sinners, repaying our unpayable debt of love by working for King Jesus in every square inch of our life, in every way we can, knowing that we are completely unworthy for the task. Do you see that the God who made the world is still passionately and compassionately involved with it? How is the king working in our world today? King Jesus is at work in all sorts of ways. Through his church. Through the poor in spirit who are making the kingdom of heaven happen through their faithful trust in God. Through the meek who are taking over the earth so gently that the powerful don't even know it. But one day they will through those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice and who are immersed in government policy and in legal rulings and speaking up on behalf of the people who are at the bottom of the pile. Remember this. Nero, the Roman emperor, did not throw Christians to the lions because they confessed Jesus is Lord of my heart. Nero threw him to the lions because they looked him in the eye and they said, Jesus is Lord of this kingdom. And we will work and live like it. And we are not subject to you. And we will live by a total different set of guidelines. And as we keep working our way through the Beatitudes, you know where they end, don't you? Blessed are those who suffer. This is not a triumphalistic gospel, but it is a gospel of triumph. Let's pray.